the National Grammar Rodeo? I wish I were going. Oh, wait, wait. I mean, I wish I was going. Is that right, Bart? Mm. It's not fair. I'm the best student in school. How come I never heard about this competition? Maybe because you are, as we say in Latin, a Dorcas Malorcus. That's not Latin. Mom, Bart's faking it. <laughs> Welcome to Peak Show, recorded on top of a bowling alley and below another bowling alley. Uh, I'm your host, Bree Rohde, and I set out to explore when the media and creators you love peaked. Here with me today is Ottawa-based digital journalist Ted Raymond. Ted, how are you? I feel like a kid in some kind of a store. <laughs> yes, and I'm so happy. I I feel like a kid in some kind of store because I am talking about, I think, what every millennial would say is their favorite uh, television show, um, slash really my third parent and or babysitter growing up we're talking about the simpsons it's a part of i think a good chunk of each of our personalities oh yes i mean <laughs> uh noted uh, friend of the show mike stevens said on um on the episode he was hosting quote whoever is her best friend is going to get picked to do the simpsons and i chose um my random twitter mutual that i've never met in person and i i do think we've we followed each other before we realized how into The Simpsons we respectively were. As I recall, I think I said something. I made a joke on Twitter, and then you made a joke in response to my joke, and I laughed and said, oh, that's worth a follow. And uh, and then you, uh, you and I just uh, found a mutual uh, appreciation of The Simpsons, which is uh, a thing that I find a lot of people of our vintage as it were yes uh i mean i I know that i am a little bit younger than you i was born in 1989 so i was born about i think six months before the first episode of the simpsons and i my situation with it was um i am the youngest of three kids and my parents uh not even for any reason of being particularly progressive or anything but they just never cared too much or monitored extensively what we watched um they they rather liked the simpsons i think they knew that there were some jokes that were inappropriate but their their attitude was always oh they'll they'll self-regulate like they trusted us like i know you're not going to say that in front of your grandpa well my grandpa's a bad example because he cursed like a sailor but like i know you're not going to say that at school or whatever and my mom was actually insistent and still is that the simpsons made us smarter kids it was it was such a an interesting uh, show, just uh, in terms of the pop culture around it at the time, uh, and uh, the parent culture around it at the time. I had friends who weren't allowed to watch The Simpsons Same when here. I was growing up, yeah. and uh, because it had this reputation as being a bad show, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Bart was a bad kid and he was a bad influence. There's that famous quote from George H. W. Bush. Uh, about how he wants America to be more like the Waltons and less like the Simpsons. And the show, I think, was only a couple of years old at that time. And I'm sure that some speechwriter threw that in. He probably had never heard of the Simpsons before. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I have a very similar story. I mean, it was, uh, you know, my folks uh, let me watch it, and uh, my parents were fairly permissive when it, when it came to that sort of thing. Uh, and, uh, and so, and, and my dad... My dad and I bonded over shows like The Simpsons and South Park mm-hmm. and things like that as, as I grew older, so it's always been kind of a part of my life. 
Okay, so I'm not even going to pretend that I'm good at slotting this in. Uh, I forgot to ask Ted a very special question as part of the intro. Uh, Ted, my friend, when did you peak? Okay, and I was really excited to tell you this because I have a specific date for you. I peaked on November 28th, 2016. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I don't know if you were expecting a specific date, and I can give you the story, so it's really quick. To quote Homer, uh, explain how. <laughs> uh, so I'm a journalist, as uh, we mentioned off the top, and, uh, and I never went to uh, J school. I went to broadcasting school, and news was just part of it, and that's just sort of where I ended up. But I've always loved uh, the old uh, newspaper headlines, uh, you know, especially the tabloid headlines, the really famous ones like Headless Body and Topless Bar uh, and things <laughs> things of that nature. And I, I love there was um, it's a headline in Variety. And I'm pretty sure it was from like the 30s. Uh, it was uh, Sticks, Nicks, Hick, Picks. And uh, it was a story <laughs> about how people in rural communities don't like movies that display them as rednecks. And um, that was that was the, the story. But the, the headline is it's a famous, famous headline. It was uh, parodied in... in uh, the radioactive man movie when Milhouse runs away from the set and uh, you know Milhouse escapes ankles pick flick sick that's what they're that's what that joke is uh, and I had been waiting my entire journalistic career for an opportunity to do uh, a, a variety style headline uh, which I probably couldn't get away with in my current job uh, but uh, I was working a, a late radio shift and uh, and I still did some web stuff and a, a press release comes in from the Brockville Police Service uh, about a guy whose home was broken into and he stole his TV and his PlayStation and uh, three dozen pairs of Air Jordans. Uh, the guy had a lot of Michael Jordan shoes. And uh, so, I, uh, so I wrote it up uh, online and uh, I gave it the, the headline, Crook Nicks Sick Kicks. <laughs> nice! That's and, great! Uh, <laughs> and uh, somebody uh, who who saw who saw the tweet uh, said that I should get a raise, and uh, I eventually did. Uh, <laughs> not maybe not for that headline, but uh, but that was it's all just been downhill from there. I haven't come up with anything better. <laughs> well, I have to ask, uh, as a fellow journalist, how many times have you attempted to insert embiggen or cromulent into an article? Because I have uh, I have tried. And it's never gotten past an editor. I have, and I did have one editor uh, who, uh, primarily English speaking, but from South Africa, and would admit she's like, "Oh, I don't always know some of your slang." Like she didn't know what the Greatest Generation was. She, uh, and so I'm thinking I could have fooled her, but I was just. <laughs> you were too honest. I wasn't. I wasn't fast enough. So have you ever gotten a cromulent or an embiggen in there? Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't uh, done uh, anything like that. I, I'm sure I've gotten uh, some Simpsons. Uh, references uh, under the radar here and there and <laughs> usually probably like weather copy or something like that like something that i can get away with uh, something a little more lighthearted. i do have a bit of editorial independence mm -hmm. in my current job but uh you know uh, you uh, don't push your luck yeah exactly exactly <laughs> you know what i mean so it's like i i i, I play everything very uh, very straight i did do one i did do one voice piece uh for the radio station i was on about homer at the bat when uh, it was inducted into the baseball hall of fame Mm -hmm. uh, I just decided to take it upon myself to do a, you know, I edited the song underneath uh, <laughs> and uh, talking softball, and, and I just kind of read the the script about it uh, over top, and that was that was that was the extent of my professional uh, Simpsons experience. You're basically a professional shit poster. <laughs> <laughs> no. You're still not in your own world, Homer. I can get you home. But you have to do exactly as I- ah! 
This is indeed a disturbing universe. Yeah. And and I think one thing that I should let our listeners know, because uh, now as we're recording this, let's see, it is May 9th as we're recording this, and the way to put the to uh, put a timeline on it, I'm not vaccinated yet. So by the time you're listening to this, I think I might be at least partially vaccinated. This is coming out in July. As you know, we are a bi-weekly podcast, and July happens to have enough weeks in it that July is Simpsons month. month. We've got three hour-long episodes coming out on The Simpsons um, because we just it's going to take that many people to get to the bottom of you know, when did the Simpsons peak? When was the Simpsons at its best? And there, because there's honestly so many different perspectives on this of like, what made the show go stale? And when did it go stale? Why did it go stale? Um, You know, a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of uh, elements of it, such as, um, you know, the too many celebrities, too much reality breaking, whatever. And so, um, you know, I I think it's just important to know that, you know, first of all, my opinion is not gospel on anything. Uh, but secondly, it's this Minus, is going to be please deep. Take my opinion. <laughs> yes, but uh, yeah, that we're uh, we're going to give you probably more Simpsons than you could ever possibly want. But the show is still going, which is an interesting part of this because I think some of your other uh, some of your other episodes have been about shows that have come and gone. Uh, as I recall, I listened to your King of the Hill episode. They're not making yes. new ones of that anymore. Uh, yeah. And so The Simpsons is kind of unique in that it's this show that has become uh, an institution in and of itself. And so, you know, are there people who th- like obviously there are people who think it's stale now. But I mean, my question, I, don't, I haven't seen a new episode in a long time. Uh, but my question is, are there kids who still watch it the way you know we would have watched it or the way we had watched it uh, looking forward to that that new episode every week? The closest I come to like youth market research is, um, you know, talking to my dance students. Now, I haven't taught dance in about a year. I feel like something happened that like I wasn't allowed inside with other people anymore. Um, but um, you know, I the the age group that I've taught most throughout the fourteen years that I've been teaching is I'd say nine through sixteen. Like I have that tweens and young teens age group down and none of them have watched The Simpsons. I think the weird thing with with little kids not little kids even teenagers is they're not used to appointment tv viewing at all anymore um yeah that's such an interesting part of it isn't it because you know when you and i would be watching the show when we were growing up uh you didn't really have a choice uh obviously we had syndication and we'll get into that in a little bit i think but Mm -hmm. uh you know so it was on multiple times a day uh at its peak Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you might be able to find, you know, a couple of episodes that you like. And maybe if, you know, one of the channels was running season one, you might, you know, like, okay, I'll watch something else for a little bit. But <laughs> but, but now it's, you know, you've got Disney Plus, you can stream, everything's on demand. And uh, so it, it, it definitely is a different uh, yes. different aspect. Yes. And, and I'll say Disney Plus when it comes to their originals, I think for me as a millennial who grew up with appointment tv disney plus is doing a smart thing with its originals which is they are rolling them out one at a time because like uh, for me um i'm not a marvel person so i'm not watching the winter soldier whatever it's called anymore but i do love the mighty ducks i I think anyone who follows me knows that i love the simpsons and i love the mighty ducks and that's basically it um and the new uh disney plus series it comes out fridays i watch it before work starts i get so excited and i think like 
can can Gen Z even identify with that feeling? Because for me, The Simpsons, like Sunday night, I know seven o'clock we would watch America's Funniest, Funniest Home Videos together as a family, and then Sunday night was Simpsons time as a family. Yeah, that was uh, generally the same uh, for us. It was my mom. My mom never really cared for The Simpsons, but my dad, my brother, and I would watch it every Sunday, uh, and uh, and then we and then uh, naturally I would be talking about it with my friends at school the following Monday. That was always the big point. And uh, it became kind of a, a game for us to see, you know, who could remember the jokes the best and, and repeat them the next morning. Because that's a big part of being the funny kid. Uh, at least it was in uh, in my time with how well you could uh, repeat The Simpsons for everybody. So this is one thing I was super excited to talk about because I saw this in your notes. And I... I've mentioned this on Twitter a few times, but it's been a really unique experience for me in my 20s and 30s, uh, realizing finally, oh my God, there were other kids who were super into The Simpsons because I can't, I've, I've always maintained, no, Northern Ontario is not a pulp, is not some sort of weird vacuum that doesn't absorb pop culture, but The Simpsons really didn't permeate where I was from the way that you'd think it would and uh, I I don't know if it's because like the town that I lived in from I'd say age 10 through 15 which is your most formative in terms of pop culture um, was it was very French uh, and it was very rural uh, but it wasn't just that the kids weren't into The Simpsons it's that I was weird as hell for being into The Simpsons Um, the the only thing I can think of that might have been the explanation is that I was also weird about how much I liked The Simpsons like I I was definitely very obsessed with it but everyone's like no this is stupid you like a stupid show and it I mean, these were, I, I lived in a town where people in high school rode their snowmobiles to school, so it was a little, like, its own little island, but it was in my 20s, or even in university, me and people were like, oh my god, like, you memorized, you know, whole scenes from The Simpsons too? Oh, like, you have strong opinions about the Frank Grimes episode? Like, I didn't know these people existed. I had a few friends that uh, that would join me in, in my Simpsonsing. Uh, when I was uh, a teenager, but uh, but yeah, no, it's it's very similar. I mean, there was a, a larger group. Uh, you know, I grew up in a fairly similar kind of place, maybe a little less rural than you, but certainly not a big city. Uh, where you know, a lot of the folks were like, "Oh, The Simpsons, it's a cartoon. It's it's a dumb show. It's it's not really, you know, that's not what the cool kids w- would watch, as it were." And so you know, we had our little group of. of of us with our nerdish leanings and uh, and we would just kind of joke about the simpsons and 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 that was fine but then of course once i got into college and i got into broadcasting uh and everybody in broadcasting is into the simpsons uh at least in my experience uh because that's what we all grew up watching and we all you know if you're getting into radio or if you're getting into uh you know want to be a dj or something you're already kind of a weird person and so, you know, that's sort of where we all kind of uh, came together. And, and, that, and that brought that social element of the show back. Because when I was growing up, and maybe this is the same, uh, you might not have this, but maybe this is the same for some of, uh, some, somebody else, is that part of it was having that social element of having that group of friends or the group of people mm-hmm. that you can share the show with. I, I think about, you know, in the 70s when people would quote Monty Python together mm-hmm. <laughs> when they were, you know, the, the, the nerds. And we are the knights who say knee. You know, <laughs> like that was, you know, that was a thing, right? And like, so, and people would memorize Monty Python sketches and, and, and do them with each other in, in college and stuff. And, and that, it was the same uh, w- 
with the Simpsons uh, for our see, generation. Uh, see, my husband's and, English, so he still does that. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I was going to ask, uh, as a, uh, you know, a guy in broadcasting, did you ever do your mic test of the, hey, uh, this is Homer Simpson saying hi to all you ladies out there in radio land. Uh, yeah, that's my general mic test. Nice! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, this is Homer Simpson saying howdy. This well, that's what I sound like? Radio land. Yeah, you get uh, used to that. Yeah. Um no, um the closest thing I had to social element, which this is great because it segues into a question I had for you, but with my sister. Uh, my sister's five years older than me and so we didn't intersect uh, pop culture-wise a lot. One thing for families that are having multiple kids, I know you, you guys can't control that, but it's really hard when, like, the only two girls in the family are the furthest apart in age because, like, we will never at any point have anything in common. Uh, and then, you know, my brother and I were close in age, and, you know, it was a real boys versus girls situation. But, like, the one thing I could always bond with my sister over was The Simpsons, which is really cool how in the 90s, like, it did kind of transcend age, like, maybe some would have regarded me as too young to be watching the simpsons but like at say when we were eight and 13 watching the simpsons together it was like this great unifying thing and when i was trying to think like okay when did i stop watching every episode because it used to be like this badge of honor that i had seen every episode and in many cases like could have told you not the exact order but like a vague order of every episode um and it was fall of 2002 because I started looking I'm like okay I've I saw this episode but like I didn't care for it and shortly after this I dropped off and that was when my sister left home and she went to university and I realized oh I think it became less fun without her and so my question for you is when when did you drop off like was there an incident was it you know starting college or what you know it's probably around the same time uh, because that's when have been that would have been when high school ended I didn't go to college until a few years afterwards, uh, but uh, some of my friends obviously went off to university, and then I got a job, and and it just sort of wasn't the same thing, you know. And I my I had a coworker uh, at one of the jobs that I had who was uh, who was big into like Family Guy and, and and that kind of stuff, and so we would still talk about it, but it wasn't it wasn't the same anymore. You know, and uh, and obviously, like I was also pretty big on the internet, different message boards and stuff, and and that was about the time when certain uh, web communities were starting to to kind of turn against the show that it had sort of jumped the shark. Or, yeah. Uh, you know, it wasn't as good as it used to be, and you know, I, I and I'm not sure, you know, how to think about that because I mean, there's no, there's an old saying about Saturday Night Live often say like what is the best cast of saturday night live and it's the one that you watched when you were a teenager oh yeah and uh you know and so obviously like you know you and i will have these memories of of seasons you know four through uh, four through eight which are usually regarded as the best mm-hmm. um and because that was what was on that was what was on when we were watching it and that was what was going on and, and it was repeated over and over on syndication and, and so I have a lot of fond memories about about those seasons compared to and I was looking through uh, some of the later episodes I was trying to remember and I still have lines from, from later episodes I was just thinking about uh, um, and I don't remember the name of the episode off the top of my head I'm a bad Simpsons fan but uh, when Lisa has when they go to Brazil uh, oh. Every time I get sugar for my coffee, I think about the now the <laughs> monkeys cannot bite me. I am like I am like sugar to them, and you know I would I would sometimes bug my wife with calling it sugar. 
<laughs> and uh, and so and that was a later episode, and I remember seeing that, and I remember seeing you know the the, the NSYNC boy band, and then they did the the We Didn't Start the Fire parody at the end of one of the clip shows later on. They'll never uh, stop the Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did Mo ever get that cell phone? Like, <laughs> <laughs> God, I hope so. Um, you know, and so yeah. and so, but yeah, I think I think it, it dropped off then, and then. And this is kind of getting into a point that I that I wanted to raise about what I kind of consider sort of eras, as it were, uh, is that you know, we had the syndication era uh, when it was on all the time and you could find it four or five or six times a day, depending on what kind of cable package you had. Yeah. And uh, and and then there were the new episodes every Sunday on on Fox. So our Fox affiliate was out of Rochester, New York. Same and, with mine. Uh, yeah. Oh well, they are, yeah, Northern Ontario. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Fox News first. It was Fox Thirty One, uh, I believe. Yeah. That's it was Fox Thirty One. Yeah. And and uh, and so we would get that, and then we would have the Comedy Network, uh, which would have The Simpsons on it, and CBC Winnipeg mm-hmm. uh, would have The Simpsons on it. Yeah. And so that was kind of the three main channels, and I think there might have been a, there might have been a station out of uh, Edmonton that we used to get that was a different one. For me. That had it as well. Yeah. For me, it was. MCTV at five o'clock, although that was usually when we ate dinner. We, we, my parents, you know, God bless them, they eat dinner at four, four fifty-five. They're consistent <laughs> as gravity. Um, uh, and then we had um, five thirty. There was a French Simpsons on, which I would sometimes watch because it actually helped me learn like French sentence structure a little bit better. Like I went to French school. I grew up in a very French area, but my French it's mm-hmm. it's it's good for Toronto, but I feel like I'd get laughed at even in Ottawa. Um, so <laughs> and my French is okay for Ottawa, but uh, you know yeah. I went to French immersion too, but I never watched the French Simpsons very much. Yeah, I couldn't get through their voices. It's it, it is very strange listening to their their French voices. All French voice acting sounds like Homer in season one, like English, when Dan Castellaneta was trying to do the Walter Matthau. That's what mm. every male cartoon voice actor in French sounds like. Um, but uh, and then there was six, and for a while also six thirty, like back to back on our Fox affiliates. And then when I turned like nine or ten, we got Teletoon, and Teletoon had like a nine o'clock or nine thirty, and that was when I got a TV in my room. So it's like, okay, watch the Simpsons oh, yeah. and go to bed. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the syndication era was really big for me, and um, I, I'll, I'm a rare defender of season one. I, I think you can appreciate it as its own thing, and you can also appreciate it for seeing. Like I think, I think watching season one is really essential to figure out what the creators and what the writers were really going for off the bat with The Simpsons. Um, and, and even if you look back at the Ullman shorts, um, because I, I finally realized, and I wrote this down, um, I feel like the original thesis of the show started out as, what if the cliche old family sitcoms that you watched as in the 60s were written by smart people? It, especially the the Ullman shorts, which were really just tiny truncated versions of that. Uh, and then you know, how it evolved. I'm sure we will get to that. But I think season one is super interesting because it was a subversion of a typical family sitcom. It was new and it was different. And it it was written by people who uh, I think had uh, a cynicism about where America was and what uh, what American values were. Because obviously you look at those shows like Leave it to Beaver and uh, even like the uh, Dennis the Menace mm-hmm. uh, comic strips, uh, you know, Bart is partially based on Dennis the Menace. But I think the premise was it's like, what if Dennis the Menace was real and he would kind of be sort of a dork? 
and uh, you know who cares? Like who's and they they, they parody that in Summer Four Foot Two is who does he think he is with that slingshot in his pocket? <laughs> Dennis the Menace, and and they call it out for what <laughs> it is, Wilson. but I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But I think at the time, you know, and it and it was this subversion of of what is typical, uh, and yeah. But you but you're right. Like season one, it, it's it's important to understand kind of the foundations, and that's when the the first crew was there, and that's when they you know got the show started before yep. it became a cultural icon. Before it was what it eventually became for us, mm-hmm. it was this plucky upstart. On this new cable network, uh, and it was kind of irreverent, and it was kind of subversive, and uh, and it was a it was a cartoon, but the kid said "damn" and "hell," and <laughs> you know he talked back to his elders and he called his dad Homer, and yeah. you know, and it was, uh, you know, it was it was definitely they were going for something, but then it, then I think once they they got their stride and they realized that they had something on their hands, that's really when it started to evolve. That's also, like, I think it's so funny because you had mentioned earlier, like, Bart Mania. But, like, that Bart Mania turned into this craze, and Bart was super cool when the intent was never for Bart to be cool. And so I think, like, it all the Simpsons already, within the first season, became something that the creators were not anticipating. Uh, and, and bravo to them for rolling with the punches and the way they adopted and grew the characters, because especially for the first, you know, most of the first decade, they really did that successfully. Yeah, I, I agree, and uh, you're right, and because that's marketing, right? Like that's a completely different department. So obviously they're trying to get merch out, and they're trying to, to sell things, and so they they take this. It was 1989, 1990. It was the age of attitude. It was the mm-hmm. age of, you know, you know, skateboards and being cool. But uh, but at the same time, like that had already been a thing for a while, and that's mm-hmm. what Bart was all about. Is that you know, he tries to be this skateboarding cool kid but he really isn't and it's but it so the marketing of bart as this this uh this cool kid and he had the bart man and that whole thing which they make fun Uh, of him when he does it on the bus that is so 1991 (laughs) and that's that's exactly what it is though right and and so and then then of course as it uh, as it moved along and then kind of homer took a bit more of a spotlight i think uh, as they kind of determined that, that was uh, the character that they could keep a lot of the uh, the physical comedy and abuse on too, and Captain Wacky. And it, yeah, yeah. That's exactly. Um, yeah, then and were you a big watcher of the Ullman shorts? Because like I I I don't know if we didn't get Tracy Ullman in Canada. I mean, I definitely like I. Well, I mean, I wasn't born then, but even reruns like it's something I've never even been able to access. Yeah, no, I thought it was a joke. When they when they did the shorts in uh, the 138th episode, spectacular. Uh, I honestly thought that that wasn't real. Like it wasn't until you know later on when I looked it up that it turns out that that was an actual thing that happened and that's how the show started. I thought they were mm-hmm. just making making things up yeah. in uh, in in that episode because uh, because they did you know they got into like the the really bad drawings of Grandpa and Krusty. <laughs> it's kind of like a joke on the, the poor animation uh, at the yeah. time, but and so I just assumed the whole thing was uh, was a gag that they were mm-hmm. doing. But uh, so no, I've never watched them. I don't think I've ever seen an episode of the Tracy Ullman show. There, I mean, it, what's interesting and what I learned from the fabulous Simpsons podcast, Talking Simpsons, was that um, a lot of the kind of utility voice actors in the first season, <clears throat> pardon me, who um, 
who didn't come back were uh, players on the Tracy Ullman show. So one of the actors was Sam McMurray. Uh, he's a character actor I really like, and he's not like a household name, but I would say that if you are a fan of um, Adam's Family Values, he had a very small part in Adam's Family Values as Dave Krumholtz's dad. And he is also in the cult classic Drop Dead Gorgeous as Denise Richards' dad. I don't know if you've seen Drop Dead Gorgeous. I haven't. If you like parody films, mockumentaries, and Minnesota accents, you will love it. <laughs> it's... um. Okay. It, it's Amy Adams before she was famous uh, has a small part in it. Brittany Murphy is in it. Uh, Kirsten Dunst looked when she was peak adorable. It's it's a fantastic movie. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I I have seen now I think most of the Elman shorts just through like YouTube and stuff and various I'll say extra legal uh, services. Um, the one in particular, and I do not know if this is what landed The Simpsons a full-time show, but I do know that it was generally regarded by the crew behind it as the best work they did, um, was a two-parter episode, and it was an adventure of Maggie chasing after a ball, and, you know, because Bart and Lisa are supposed to be watching her, and she gets away, and she goes on this crazy adventure, surfing through the sewers and stuff, and... Um, uh, and it was the first time Maggie really became a character in those uh, in those shorts. But uh, they still, to this day, if you follow like Bill O'Glee, Josh Weinstein, or any of uh, the old uh, old Simpsons boys on Twitter, um, they posted it fairly recently. And that was also when the animation started becoming a little bit tighter and stuff. And I think that's when they knew like we have something really special here. So I, I think the Almond shorts are worth a rewatch again because it shows like what was the intent of graining, what was the intent of uh, even the animators with what they were trying to create. I mean, Homer is uh, such an... He's so interesting to me, early Homer, from the Ullman shorts to um, the um, uh, the episode in the first season where they go to Mr. Burns's picnic and they get embarrassing. And Homer's the one who's obsessed with traditional family values. It's like, oh man, that is not the Captain Wacky that we came to love. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And that was part of the... Part of the thing that, as a kid, like didn't necessarily like the first season for, mm-hmm. it felt a little kind of preachy, and it felt a little bit too uh, sort of uh, old-fashioned-y kind of thing, or sort of on the nose, and mm-hmm. it wasn't it, it wasn't what I was into. I was into the slapstick, and I was into the jokes, and of course, as I got older, then I started to appreciate the writing more. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no, it's it the the character development uh, is is definitely something that that I do enjoy uh, looking back at some of the older episodes and seeing how far things have come in terms of the voices, in terms of, you know, how they animate the characters, how they pair the characters up uh, with each other and, and, and the relationships that are formed within Springfield. So one of the things, like, normally every episode we do like a kind of history segment and it becomes kind of Wikipedia corner for a bit, but I, I feel like the history of The Simpsons is so known and everything. Uh, I mean, aside from the fact that I always love talking ratings because for so long, you know, being a media reporter, I, I did uh, cover ratings. And the peak of The Simpsons rating-wise was actually the season two premiere. Like, it, it's been downhill since Bart gets an F. Uh, but that said, it has always brought enough returns. And the animation is notoriously cheap. That um, I mean, that's why they'll never stop The Simpsons because it, it brings it pulls in money and it it pulls in the ROI. But um, 
One other bit of history that I do think is important to contextualize the show, I'm obsessed with showrunners. That's the other thing about me being a weird little comedy nerd. I, I knew what a showrunner was from about grade five, grade six on, and I was like, oh, well, this show isn't as good since they changed the showrunner. Um, so for seasons one and two, it was Matt Groening, James L. Brooks, and Sam Simon, but I believe it was largely Jim Brooks, especially uh, around the second, who was running the show. And James L. Brooks, he was... Uh, he was the main guy who was the sitcom veteran, and um, he was really great for adding the heart to things. Um, what I will also say about graining is, um, despite the you would think that being like a you know comedy writer in his fifties or probably sixties by now, that graining would be uh, talking about how cancel culture has ruined America or whatever. Um, he was the PC one. He was the one who like he did not like Hitler jokes. He did not like. Uh, a lot of jokes that made fun of kids. Like, that's why if you could see, um, if you saw like a Nazi joke or something in especially like a season eight or nine uh, show or a joke about Ralph being like a special kid, that's how you knew. Oh, Grenning was busy with Futurama. He couldn't uh, He couldn't get on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not a fan of Hitler. Matt Groening famously uh, against Hitler. Yes. Good. It's, it's time <laughs> someone said it. Um, Season four, three and four was uh, Al Jean and Mike Reese. Um, season five and six was Dave Merkin. Uh, and he has regarded season five and six as creating the cruelest version of Homer. Like, I mean, I'm sure you've heard jerk-ass Homer discourse of like, oh, it got bad when Homer became a jerk-ass. And people have pointed out, Homer's been a jerk-ass since the Merkin years. Um, that said... Merkin is an interesting yeah. character. David Merkin is... Because uh, I... I the, the second era uh, that uh, that I wanted to bring up was the DVDs. Uh, mm-hmm. Once uh, once those started rolling out, and that's uh, I got into those when I was an adult and uh, started listening to the the commentary tracks. And David Merkin is uh, a very unique individual who has a very particular uh, kind of mind that is difficult to describe. And the the direction he took the show in, because he's such a fan of of much darker humor, I think, uh, violence and, and things like that. He did take the show into a bit of a, a wackier direction, but uh, I, I do still think that, you know, seasons five and six did have their did have their moments. I mean, mm-hmm. he knew when to pull back and when to let, uh, you know, nicer things happen to the characters, but he was certainly, uh, mm-hmm. like, just listening to him on the commentary track, sometimes it can be exhausting just how much he's on all yeah. the time. Yes. Um, season seven and eight, um, probably my two favorite showrunners, um, Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein, um, also because they um, they have gone on to um, create some uh, one of my favorite underrated one season uh, cartoons, not Clone High. I like this even better than Clone High. Mission Hill. It mm-hmm. is uh, yeah. it's it's hard to find, and I'll say um, legally. Um, but if you're not interested in doing things legally um i think every episode law-abiding i'm done (laughs) uh thanks mrs k i know it's um every episode is on youtube uh hard recommend on mission hill it's very different from the simpsons but um it definitely has their their harvardy qualities to it um and then that brings us to 9 through 12 mike scully which i am shocked that mike scully who he didn't really have a show running partner although i think I think Ian Maxstone Graham is re- is regarded as kind of a co-showrunner at that point, but um, 
Mike Scully, seasons 9 through 12, controversial as a showrunner. And I have to say, I agree with a lot of the criticism of him as a showrunner. But as a person, Mike Scully kind of rules. Um, he he really uh, stood with the voice actors and with the writers, um, helped the voice actors bargain for better pay, uh, supported both the writers and the voice actors unions. Uh, and he wrote a lot of that subversive stuff into his episodes. There was the joke uh, with Flanders, and I think it was a season 10 episode about uh, replacing the voice actors. And and the viewers can't tell the ding dong difference. So um, <laughs> I have a lot of respect for Mike Scully as a person. But I have to say, and like one of the criticisms of The Simpsons, and it's, I don't even think this is an artistic criticism of The Simpsons. It's just an easy joke to make that like, it's run by rooms full of Harvard boys. Like pretty much, I, I'd say 90% of the writers, uh, the writer staff comes from Harvard. That's where that joke comes from the, hey, egghead, sing fair Harvard. Um, but The boorish mannerisms of a Yaley. <laughs> so um, Mike Scully is a community college dropout and he really de-Harvardified the writer's room. And the kind of like cultural leftist in me wants to say this is awesome and you know it's it removed that layer of elitism from it because like basically you had to have grown up wealthy to become a simpsons writer because you had to have grown up wealthy to go to harvard but also i have to admit that you do feel a difference when the writer's room gets de-harvardified because you start to miss a lot of those clever things like the sign gags. There used to be so many good sign gags in The Simpsons, whether it was, you know, the, um, my, I think one of my favorite episodes, which is the, um, the Halloween uh, Treehouse of Horror 5, um, and the kids are about to fall into the blender, and it says Hamilton Beach, uh, like, children's edition or whatever, which is <laughs> disgusting. But, uh, it's so dark. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, I think the closest you come to a good sign gag in the Mike Scully era is calling the hair salon where Apu gets his hair cut Harry Shearers. Um, that's that's cute. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's clever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, he. I mean, he did four seasons, and unfortunately those were the seasons where I stopped caring. Uh, then season 13 on, Al Jean came back, um, which is weird because you'd think it would be this return to form, and it really wasn't um but i also think at that point even even if you look at say seasons five and six the simpsons are so far removed from who they were in al Jean and mike reese's era that i don't think you can easily return it to form um so yeah that's like al Jean's been doing it for 20 years now uh which is crazy I, you never hear of a showrunner sticking with something for 20 years yeah, and it's just because it's just this. It, it it became by that point it had become, you know, uh, it had become an institution. It had just become this thing that that was would always exist. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in the early in the earlier seasons, they would be making jokes yeah, fairly frequently. Uh, at least in the you know the the 138th episode spectacular, they kept you know they, it's like who knows what adventures they'll have between now and the time the show becomes unprofitable. Now we're talking about the Simpsons in 2021 and it's still on TV. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, the unfortunate thing about it being owned by Disney now is that like, I feel like before, and not that I have faith in any corporation, but I feel like before if, cause like I did watch some recent episodes there, they're okay, but it, I would never tune into it if it didn't have the cultural baggage of the Simpsons. Um, 
but with um with current episodes you can hear even like nancy cartwright because i mean with with any boy you you do get a woman to do their voice um you can hear the age of Nancy Cart right now because she's in her sixties. Uh, Dan Castellaneta, mm-hmm. like he's an he's an old man now, and like it's it's easier to hide on Homer, but he doesn't sound the same. Julie Canver, like how or Kavner, how long can she do that voice? Um, and you have a feeling because it's Disney now that they're just they're just going to replace them. Like they they that's not important to Disney. You know, Disney is a content machine, and and like. No one gets into show business for, or at least no one becomes a show business executive to make the world a better place. But um, it's kind of sad to me. I mean, I just watched the the new short. I, I don't like any of the Maggie shorts, but this new one, The Force Awakens from its nap. Oh, what a stinker. Uh, uh, did you watch it? No. It felt like, um, because it's just, it, because it's a Maggie short, I mean, they're very cheap to produce even more so because... They're three minutes long, but they also don't include any voices, really. Um, you know, you don't even have... Because it mainly... They all involve around Maggie being dropped off somewhere. You know, dropped off at daycare, dropped off at the park. Um, and so you don't even have Julie Kavner saying, like, Bye-bye, honey! Um, this was Maggie being dropped off at a Star Wars daycare. And unlike the other ones, there's not even really a plot to it. It's just her looking at Star Wars things... And it just felt like Disney pulling down its pants and mooning me, saying, we own everything now. And Put away those yeah. interesting Mattel products. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, yeah, yeah, because, I mean, they've done Maggie shorts uh, yeah. within the show. I mean, obviously, uh, the, the Great Escape during uh, oh. uh, Streetcar Named Marge yes. uh, and, uh, and things like that. And so, like, Maggie, Maggie's such an interesting character because she can't talk. And, mm-hmm. and because they developed her into uh, this, she's, you know, we, my friends uh, would always say that Maggie is the smartest Simpson. Yes. Uh, you know, and she's just, she's clever and she's creative and she's ambitious and she's a baby. And that's what makes it funny. Uh, you know, but, uh, but boy, yeah. The, I, see, I don't know because I don't know what, you know, if if it gets to a point where Disney decides to just replace them, will it still be The Simpsons at that point? I mean, you know, obviously there's going to be an uh, there's going to be an internet furor mm-hmm. as there is about everything, but you know, the people who would be most likely to complain are they even still watching the show? Well, yeah, that's um, the thing is we do as millennials feel a sense of ownership over The Simpsons that I kind of like. It's easy to get really defensive about that, but even cynically, I'm like okay, this isn't for us anymore. I don't know who it's for anymore. Um, but, you know, I like, A, I can just stop watching, and B, I, I have stopped watching. Um, I also think when I see what Disney is has done with both Marvel and Star Wars, which, I mean, like, I, yeah, I like Star Wars. I watched Mando. I loved it. But um, Star Wars has not become a star series of stories it has become a franchise and that's why like i don't necessarily when i hear terms like cinematic universe and extended universe i'm just like oh so you mean a franchise an entertainment franchise mm-hmm. you know an opportunity for spin-offs and when i see uh the maggie spin-offs like especially the force awakens from its nap but like all the maggie shorts really that's what i see the simpsons becoming is maybe you know capital t s the simpsons as a series might end 
But I also have no doubt that we might see, say, like the Mo Show or uh, a, a series of skits involving comic. I don't know if anyone actually likes Comic Book Guy, but like those <laughs> kinds of things. I can see becoming a thing, especially with streaming now being the predominant form of, uh, you know, short form and mid form media consumption, um, you know, say like 12 minute episodes of, um, you know, I don't know, Skinner, Skinner and the superintendent, you know, because they, they did actually do a follow up to steamed hams this year, but like 22 short films about Springfield, like that, that was a great, great episode maybe that's a template for what they'll do with it in the future and like on and who knows yeah. what exciting sexy adventures they'll get into <laughs> i mean they've already parodied that too you know yes. but that like <laughs> they'll, um, they'll do a, a wiggum a wiggum show maybe they'll actually make uh, what was it uh, wiggum pi or yeah what, you it, know Chief it'll wiggum, be in new orleans and Chief Wiggum PIG. Um, that that makes me ask because, and this is a very specific thing, but um, are there any line readings of The Simpsons that you kind of reference every every day, even though they're not the, the words themselves aren't unique to Simpsons, but the readings are? Because for me, it's Chief Wiggum's. Oh God! In that episode, I do that all the time, especially like when I learned that another Leafs player has been injured or like Nick Foligno out for two weeks. Oh God! Like, do you have anything like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I probably have several. I mean, having them come to mind uh, <laughs> just off the top of my head is sometimes difficult because it's yeah. just such a part of my, it's just such a part of my, uh, the way my brain works. I mean, I was raised practically on a steady diet of The Simpsons, <laughs> uh, Royal Canadian Air Force, this hour is 22 minutes, and, you know, just for laughs, stand-up comedy special. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm 90% uh I'm 90% comedy all the time. Like that meme that you see, it's like, what's going on in that head of yours? And it's like <laughs> steamed hams, especially Lisa, but especially Bards, the big one equals bitey. Like that's my brain, you know? And so I, I think about things all the time and there's always some kind of line that comes up in my head at some point or another. And when I was, uh, when I was, uh, you know, a, a teenager, uh, I, I, I feel like I developed, and I don't know if anybody else listening will have this same experience, but an almost, sixth sense for episodes that would be on um i don't know if it was just because subconsciously i knew the order that they were coming up in or what but i would think of a line or i would think of a scene and then it would be on tv within 24 hours and it happened enough that i noticed it and i had brought it up with another friend of mine in college who had the same experience and i was starting to believe that the simpsons had become part of like our you know millennial and at that time we were called echo boomers we're not you know we're called millennials now but so, yeah uh when i did uh, research methods in college uh, the, the generation i was assigned to was um i was the baby boom echo the children of the baby boomer uh, but they call us all millennials now <laughs> um but it had become part of this collective you know collective subconscious among the generation of the people who had just grew up just having the, the simpsons basically streamlined into our brains just hooked to our veins 24 hours a day not literally, but close enough. Just hook it to my veins. <laughs> and that's where Frankiac comes in. Oh, yeah. You know? I'm so excited about that. There is nothing on my uh, my cell phone or my desktop computer that is visited more often than Frankiac. That website is arguably one of the most important websites mm -hmm. <laughs> for people like us that has ever been made. Oh, absolutely. And the creator is a genius. 
-hmm. and it's it's user friendly and i can find anything and that's the third era that i wanted to bring up was the frankiac era because that created what we now know as the the culture of simpsons uh, ship posts can i yes. say that on this network and absolutely <laughs> yeah network. well and they also call it board posting Right, right, yeah. and, and 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 where they would combine jokes together, where like you would put the, the lemon face from Lemon of Troy on different characters, or, or the, the the dud, dud. face, yes. yeah, <laughs> yay, the the slow the slow smile when when the dud gets revealed in places where the dud isn't ever supposed to be, yeah, and I mean I've made my share, and then of course that obviously topped off with steam hands, yes, which. Be took on a life of its own mm -hmm. uh but uh but i mean i've i've made my own uh, i did one with um with lionel hutz uh <laughs> where he uh he was in the courtroom it's like yeah, you're accused of stealing this lemon <laughs> sweetest the sweetest fruit available at the time what's so that tempting. you want me to eat you you want me to eat you <laughs> But I'm in the middle of a trial, and he runs and he calls David Crosby, and then of course the final panel is him with the, with the lemon face because he's the lemon. <laughs> oh my god, this that is amazing. Um, which uh, this might be the f only time we get to bring this up because it's not really about timeline of the show, although uh, big coinciding with Phil Hartman's um, untimely uh, departure from this earth. Um, that I feel like one of the few people who prefers. Uh, Lionel Hutz as a character to Troy McClure. I love Troy McClure as well, but I just think Lionel Hutz is such a great character. Um, everything, like his readings of Lionel Hutz are so great. Like the smoking, like, look, he's taking another puff. <laughs> uh, Replace the word accidentally with the word repeatedly. repeatedly. And the word and dog. The word dog. With son. With son. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, Lionel Hutz is Lionel Hutz is incredible, and uh, you know Troy McClure. Troy McClure is Troy McClure, and he was amazing. And and it broke my heart to hear that he was talking about before he died about doing a live action Troy McClure yeah. uh, thing. That they wanted to do that, and and he was really keen because he kind of looked like Troy McClure. Yeah, he really uh, did. Phil Hartman. And so it would have been amazing, but uh, you know it wasn't meant to be, I suppose. But yeah, Lionel Hutz as a as a uh, Phil Hartman character. I think it's. I agree. It was would be my favorite too. And and like I I was eight years old when Phil Hartman died, and that was I think truly the first celebrity death that I absorbed, you know, and kind of realized like, oh my gosh, he died. Like I, I mean, I I was a weird little skid, but I was not a ten year an eight year old watching news radio. Like I wasn't that sophisticated. Um, <laughs> I was, however, a ten year old who liked Night Court. I loved Night Court when I was ten. So, um, but um, I remember just thinking like, oh my gosh, like he's so amazing and this is how amazing i thought phil hartman was when i was a kid that terrible christmas movie jingle all the way with schwarzenegger um phil hartman plays the neighbor the obnoxious neighbor in that and i remember even when i was a kid thinking this movie's lame i don't like it and then phil hartman shows up because his voice was so distinct and i'm like you know what i'm into this now i'm gonna watch it yeah. for phil hartman because he's so good at playing a dick yeah yeah <laughs> he was amazing yeah um i mean so and one of the one of the things I often like talking about is like who would have been the showrunners like if not Scully because there were a lot of people like and we talked about this myself and Mike Stevens about King of the Hill how Greg Daniels leaving to go do King of the Hill um, did change the dynamic of the Simpsons he was never he was never a showrunner uh, but and then 
Greg Daniels also then left King of the Hill to do The Office and things things changed on King of the Hill as well. So like you really do when you watch these shows that are all interconnected realize the brain drain that comes when certain writers leave. King of the Hill took a bunch of writers and animators with it and then Futurama took a bunch of writers. But I always think like if I think if Greg Daniels had stayed on, we wouldn't have seen the Scully years or maybe not until later, but I do think we would have seen a Greg Daniels season. And one thing Greg Daniels was really good at was like observational realism. Uh, or if, if David S. Cohen, who later became David X. Cohen, had not left for Futurama, we might have seen a David, a David S. Cohen showrun season. He was he was the nerd. You know, he, he was Yeah, Frank. yeah, David Cohen is a, yeah, yeah. Uh. A David Cohen showrun season would have been very interesting. Mm-hmm. It would have been, uh, it would have been, maybe like almost Futurama e, but yes. in the Simpsons universe. Because yeah, no, he's he's another char- he's another guy who's got a, a very interesting, uh, very interesting outlook on uh, on life and on uh, just based on his experiences and he's a PhD in physics. I want to say mathematics. Something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, but then Aleph-Notplex, there it is again. It's uh, it would have uh, it would have never happened. But I would have been so delighted with a John Schwartzwelder run season. Can you imagine just like westerns everywhere? Marge and Lisa show up twice, uh, and just <laughs> hobos with, with bindles and yes. Uh. I I mean, this was uh, we were recording this about a week after the New Yorker. Uh, rolled out the really first ever full-length interview with John Schwartzwelder, the mysterious old man uh, who, like, he was a mysterious recluse while he was on The Simpsons, let alone when he left. He is the most prolific writer. Um, he was notoriously the conservative old crank, but I, I really think he, it's, I think it would be doing him a disservice to identify him as a capital R Republican. For one thing, I think everyone was saying, wasn't it so nice that he didn't talk about cancel culture in that interview? He just talked about like the art of comedy. It was such a cool, yes. such a cool piece. It was really well done. And, uh, and, and hearing just in his replies, he was still dropping in jokes. Yes. Right. Like that was, that was his whole thing. He's like, you know, at the very end, was what was he said? It's like, you know, we've, created a generation of uh, smart Alex who think that everybody is up to something. If that's all we've accomplished aside from the billions of dollars we've made, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which that, when you hear that, that sounds like a Homer line, you know, that, that, that break slightly breaking reality, like the jokes on you for laughing at this, like Schwarzwalder was amazing at that. Yeah. He, and, and I think there was a, there was some, there was some mythology, and I think it was eventually dismissed uh, that that he was the kind of inspiration for Ron Bur- uh, not Ron Burgundy, um, Ron Swanson. Oh, that uh, no. that there were elements of John Schwartzwelder and Ron Swanson's character, uh, and I think uh, I think Daniels eventually said that uh, maybe maybe not necessarily, but like I I I think some of it rubbed off. Some of it may yeah. have just kind of subconsciously rubbed off. Uh, yeah. But yeah, he was, uh, you know, and and it was it was in when I was listening to the DVDs uh, and and learning about uh, learning more about who the writers were and who the uh, uh, who the showrunners were, and I, I became so much more interested in that mm-hmm. side of the show. Yeah, and he brings that up in the interviews. Of the Simpsons was a show that that made people care about who the writers are. Yeah, you know, it, because it did for most me. Of the, most shows most shows people cared about the actors. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but all of a sudden people were looking at writing credits and they were looking at show running credits yep uh as evidenced by you know 10 year old Bree Rody who <laughs> knew who all the showrunners were yeah uh you know i didn't have a concept of seasons until much later i mean i i I, I take in my media much more at face value most of the time, and I because I just like to tune things out and just sort of have fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, but uh, but getting into getting into those DVDs and, and into Schwartzwelder as as the legend that he became was was certainly a, a, a fun part of uh, growing as a, a Simpsons fan. Yeah, um, I, I think one of the things with the syndication era that really helped was there was a point that at least a few points when they did start playing them chronologically and I think it was the five o'clock one that I could always count like okay I'm watching the Simpsons in order and that even helped me like because even as a kid you if you don't understand like who's writing this episode or whatever you do understand visuals and so you can see the animation become tighter or brighter and then as you get into say the 10th season or whatever it takes a bit of a nosedive um so and i also i had a few of those books the complete guides to the simpsons or whatever and it showed all the, like you know the hidden jokes and stuff and so i i did become really into chronology of the simpsons from a young age uh if you can't tell i had so many friends um <laughs> but um so for me, when I look at the history of The Simpsons, I think a lot of it is regarded, um, a lot of people regard season three as the peak, which um, I've said previously on here that I think season three, uh, with any especially comedy show, you can always regard season three as like the best of anything. I actually so disagree about that, because I and I just mainlined all of season three a couple days ago to see, and I mean, I don't think season three is bad. I think season three is excellent, amazing. Um, for me, my preference is I like character-driven stuff. That's why I love King of the Hill. That's why I love like the mid-seasons of Futurama. That's why I never liked Family Guy. Um, I think, you know, when you look at that thesis of the show of like, what if an old family sitcom uh, was written by smart people? That is really alive in season three, and that's why like I do appreciate season three much more as an adult than I did as a kid. But. Um, as a result, because it's still a very subversive show at that point, I feel like it tries to cram in the sentimentality in a way that's a bit unearned. Like, a good example, I just before this watched Separate Vocations, um, and when Bart you know, when Bart becomes a cop, and I, I or a hall monitor, but basically a cop, did not notice until this last time that Lisa calls him a fascist very casually at the end. Um, but, uh, you know... It was a different time. <laughs> it was a different time then. When when Bart uh, bails Lisa out, and Lisa, she's crying, because he's like, you're looking at expulsion fish. She's like, I know, I know. But it's like, well, why is Lisa suddenly regretful? You know, she was a rebel at first, and now she's about to get caught, and now she regrets it. And, like, that didn't, that wasn't resolved. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the fact that it didn't resolve it, but it is a choice that the writers made that like we're going to cram in the sentimentality and just have everything else be kind of a parody up to that point for me season four is when the simpsons grew a heart and i think like the earliest example of that in season four is a streetcar named marge uh the um like the the speech with homer and uh and marge at the end and homer actually learning his lesson i thought that was a really good emotional thread um you've got other great emotional ones in that uh season lisa's first words selma's choice so there was that was when they started to really strike the balance of heart and funny or skits versus characters to me season four also has a number of episodes that 
a lot of fans regard as uh, very highly like last exit to springfield and march versus yes. the monorail yes which are obviously some of my favorites uh, as well mm-hmm. uh, i always identified a lot more with uh, with the sixth season personally mm-hmm. um i think that's about when i first remember getting really into the show like actually mm-hmm. really getting into it and caring about it uh, my my absolute favorite episode of all time is uh, is in season six, and that's uh, Lemon of Troy. Yep, <laughs> uh, that is my number one. I mean, it's 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 just such a it's just such a boys' adventure. Yeah, and uh, and it's just you know it, it's packed with jokes and, and and that kind of stuff. Uh, but my ultimate my ultimate and I, I my ultimate regret from season six. Uh, is that uh, I didn't get to see Who Shot Mr. Burns Part 1 when it aired. Uh. Uh, we had one TV, and something else was on, and I was 10, you know, and so that's just the way it goes, right? And I remember my friends all talking on the uh, the playground the next day, and that's, this is the earliest in time I can place a memory of the show, mm-hmm. uh, is... is of caring about the show. And we already knew enough about it because we, they all thought Smithers did it. And I hadn't seen the episode. I said, well, Smithers yeah, is Smithers in love with it. Mr. Burns. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, and I said, well, Smithers is in love with Mr. Burns. I mean, I knew that much about the show by then. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and they're like, no, 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 you didn't see the episode. It, it's totally him. And then mm-hmm. we found it. It was the baby. <laughs> <laughs> see, I, I was not, I was, I think five years old when uh who shot mr burns aired and i already had an opinion about it i didn't know who it would be but i always with my quote-unquote complaint about the simpsons which you know i didn't realize as a five-year-old was the point of it was well every episode resets anyway and every episode resets what happened so my thing i i was i was this close to getting i was like well it doesn't matter who shot him because you know we're everything's going to go back to normal after and, uh, you know, I think my parents probably should have taken the TV away from me at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and and so picked up on it. when it turned out to be Maggie, that might have been me realizing, oh, my God, I understand how comedy works. <laughs> like, um, yeah. See, I think I and I'm trying to remember this. I seem to recall being very disappointed. A lot of people were. That it that it turned out to be Maggie. But then. You know, they built upon it to the point where, you know, like Maggie has all these guns. <laughs> like, uh, you know, it's like, oh, she's probably dreaming about the time she shot Mr. Burns. And, like, <laughs> it, it becomes this heartwarming thing. And, and yeah. she's, you know, and it, and it develops Maggie more as a character. But yeah. uh, but I, I do recall, I do recall when, because I, uh, I did see part two in there. And, uh, and... I do recall being being upset Part one is also just mystery aside, the the direction of the episode, the animation of the episode. I always think of the shot of Homer when he's spray painting on the wall and the big like 360, I, I don't know names of shots, but like the the way it pans over and he runs at Mr. Burns, like it's stunning. Like I'm like, did, oh, yeah. did this episode win Emmys? It should have. Oh, I'm sure it did. Yeah. Uh, There's... um. For for me also like because season uh, season five you know ending ending with uh, or no season six that ended with who shot Mr Burns season five I actually have to say is among the strongest Simpsons stuff it is the weakest season to me and I think that's just because it went into wacky town in ways that I don't think like 
fit with the show at the time. Like, um, Homer's Barbershop Quartet, apparently a lot of uh, people within the show had a problem with it because they're like, that bends reality more than Homer going into space because that's Homer and and Apu and Barney and Skinner were all friends and had a band. Like, they kind of hang a lampshade on it, but that was, I think, the show saying, yeah, we really don't care about continuity. Like, we kind of already didn't care. We really don't care about it. We, yeah, we just yeah. want to do Beatles jokes. And, um, you know, that's... Bart's Inner Child is another, like, very, very goofy episode. Uh, the Springfielder, How I Learned to Stop Worrying in Love, Legalized Gambling, that was a real kind of reality bender of the show. But there is one episode in season five that I want to call out because I do think it is... You know, again, it, how even when the show was wacky, had so much heart. Uh, and this has a very special personal, uh, um, just personal uh, meaning to me, uh, which is Secrets of a Successful Marriage. And um, my sister, uh, who, again, she was a big part of me loving The Simpsons, when she got married uh, 11 years ago. Oh, my gosh, you're so old, sister. Um, she... Um, Hey, no, I think we're the same age. Oh, yeah, she was born in 84, so... Um, yeah. yeah, she... Um, uh, so she had a bit of a light Simpsons theme to her wedding. And like, I always am careful with how I introduce that because I think people think that it's like she was some sort of crazy person who got married, you know, with her skin painted yellow or whatever, just as Marge. <laughs> uh, it was not. It was like they had a Simpsons cake topper. The groom's cake was a Rice Krispie with a Rice Krispie square with a bite taken out of it. Um, the wine at the table, which uh, we had uh, some great cranberry wine uh, homemade by my brother-in-law's family, had Duff labels on it. And uh I still have a the bottle of Duff Cranberry in uh, in my apartment. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and the minister, the super cool minister, she incorporated a bit of Marge and Homer mythos into her uh, service, and she talked about. Uh, she mentioned Homer's final monologue in that, and you know the the extremely subversive, like this is what I can offer you: complete and utter dependence. And that's supposed to be like a line that you laugh at, and yet it's. It's so tragic because he's like, I need you to love me and I am I am no one without you. And um, there's another similar version of that, that um, episode one, Malcolm in the Middle, um, Hal basically does that with Lois um, with the message that like nothing in my life is complete until I've I've shared it with you. And I think it's such a great thing that incorporates Homer's characterization of being this oaf, you know, who does depend so much on his wife and yet like that's how they love each other and with um and the the minister really actually made it into this beautiful thing of like you know i need you to love me and like loving each other and you you work at it every day together and for for that reason i just every time i watch secrets of a successful marriage and that scene in particular i i tear up you know it's it's such a great episode mm-hmm. I, and i think that that was part of some of the attitude that uh david merkin had about kind of the, the the mythos of the show or the the ethos of the show uh in that you know it's okay that things aren't perfect mm-hmm. you know uh that you can still make it work you can still have a good life homer and and marge are, are often seen agonizing over their bills and you know, sitting at the the table, he's got his half moon glasses on, and they're, they're checking to make sure that they get. I love those things. glasses. <laughs> <laughs> but and 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 they and and Homer is he can be a jerk sometimes, and, and they get into all kinds of trouble. But at the end of the day, they have a very solid relationship and a very stable marriage. They love each other. They have a good sex life. I mean, it's it's an interesting oh, yeah. dynamic that you see 
in in this cartoon that is supposed to be kind of wacky and subversive but at the end of the day it is still about this family and this family that that that, that they love each other yeah. in, in their own ways and that, and it was like lisa's line in, in lisa's wedding you know, it's like you make fun of them more than than any of us, but I still love them. Yeah. Oh, that was I the other thing. I don't think you thing. understand that. My sister made piggy cufflinks for her husband. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, there was also this wasn't something she arranged, but um, her mother-in-law and best man burst in right after the first dance, dressed as they were dressed as Homer and Marge, dancing to see my vest. So, which that's a great a great topic. The songs that were written. Uh, in uh, that peak of the Simpsons were so good. I I think for me my favorite is Spring in Springfield. Oh, we could do a whole episode on the song. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of the Stonecutters myself, but uh, yes, which and and just can we talk much, though? Yeah. <laughs> can we talk though about the alleged exclusivity of the Stonecutters? Because I think the only <laughs> male in Springfield that is not in the Stonecutters is Groundskeeper Willie. That's like, <laughs> how exclusive is this damn club? <laughs> I think that's the joke. <laughs> uh, oh, can, see, I just yeah. missed an opportunity to say that's the joke. Oh shit! Um, but yeah, um, I. Being from a family of musicians, my mom is a piano teacher. My sister and I are trained pianists. Um, we had a Simpsons songbook. The stuff in there is hard. It's really, and it, you're like, oh my gosh, the, the people who composed these, this was no joke. Even though some of them are, of course, like somewhat direct parodies, like uh, CMFS, obviously a Be Our Guest parody, but like um, Spring in Springfield uses a lot of uh, a lot of sevenths, a lot of ragtime uh, musical um musical flourishes and i think it's it's such an amazing song but i'm like this kills my hands this song the music in the simpsons is very interesting and here's a point that a friend of mine uh one of my colleagues uh, brought up uh, about homer is that homer is you know in canon a very talented musician he even plays piano uh, yeah he plays piano <laughs> play the cello <laughs> and uh and, and he can and he can adapt and uh, and he can actually do, and uh, it, it was it, it served uh, it served a purpose for the story in Homer's Barbershop Quartet, mm -hmm. but I think they kept it on in later episodes where he was you know you know fairly skilled at at, at playing the piano and, and, and improvising musically yeah and uh, and and it's because I think part of it is just some of the uh, some of the staff just had such a fondness for music and that's yeah. you see that in, in the song. I, yeah, I agree with you. Um, with with season six, you know, you mentioning season six had your favorite episode, and I think some of the best episodes in season six are Lisa's Rival, um, one that is a big source of memes for me for obvious reasons, Lisa on Ice uh, being the mm -hmm. hockey episode, um, Itchy and Scratchy Land, uh, which, like, that was, that to me was a very appropriate Wacky Town episode uh, because, yes, it's like, you have the topsy-turviness of Itchy and Scratchy Land, but it's it's something that makes sense in the universe of the show. It's a family taking a family vacation to a theme park. And, like, I mean, I know some people said, oh, this is when the uh, this is when the family's financial means, or limited financial means, wasn't playing as big of a part. I I'm sorry, like, I grew up in a, like, fairly middle-class family, like, single-income family, and we went to Disney World once. Like, everyone many families get their either Canada's Wonderland or Universal Trip once. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, obviously, I think a lot of folks are saying, you know, when he decides to drop $1,100 <laughs> on itchy and scratchy money. Yes. You know. But, again, like, 
The Simpsons never cared about continuity. No. And, uh, and that's that's a gag that he's mm. willing to just. It's like, oh, give me eleven hundred dollars worth. Yes. Like it's you know, and it's it's so casual. It's funnier you know, and it comes than up ag- thirty dollars, <laughs> you know. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it comes up again in um, in. Uh, I think uh, it's the Angel episode when they're at the mall and or there's something. Homer's distracted by something and he's just giving. Uh, that they're at the Mega Mall. Oh, it's the Loch Ness monster episode. They're at the Mega Mall and he is giving uh, the kids money and Marge is like, Homer, do you really think you should be giving them that much? Oh, and he like he gives her the money. Um. It's just like I get that it breaks continuity. It's funny. I mean, I'm watching oh, a yeah. cartoon no, here, people. <laughs> no, exactly. And, and um, in the uh, in the episode where uh, where they discover uh, the, the day the violence died, that mm-hmm. was the episode I was trying to think. Another great. Se- it, it's the same thing. Six, yeah. Uh, oh, the parade. Uh, yeah. Well, and he he. It's like and Bart needs to to. Can I have seven hundred fifty dollars to buy this? Wait itchy, a minute! What drawing. for? Yeah, <laughs> you know, and then then he then he he goes into his wallet again. Bart needs to hire the lawyer, or no? It was he needs like eight hundred thousand dollars or something to pay the royalties yeah. <laughs> for for the itchy and scratchy to uh, to Chester J. Lampwick. Yes, and uh, this is like and he opens his wallet and, and like that's just kind of one of those uh, one of those similar jokes yeah another great one from that season because I also have Lament of Troy written down uh, Homer versus sexual inadequacy um, they were really into blank versus blank uh, episode titles for a while but Homer versus mm-hmm. sexual inadequacy was a great one again the line reading of maybe you need a divorce um, or <laughs> it, like not a day goes by and like I pass this in my apartment all the time if I am with my husband and we pass by the utility room and the utility room. <laughs> um, the janitor's wife. So for me, and you know, we're talking about peak seasons and stuff. Uh, this all builds towards season seven, which to me is a peak in actual perfection. And I think like anyone who's read my medium essays knows that I have um, a special place in my heart for the season seven finale, uh, Summer of Four Foot Two. And I told myself I'm not going to just be biased towards Summer of Four Foot Two and say that that was the peak. But what I will say is that season seven in general is the peak for me because I think it strikes the best balance of wackiness, you know, one-liner, memeability, and a lot of sentimentality. Um, you know, uh, one, I want to say like it's an underrated episode because for me it's almost an all-timer and yet there's nothing special about it. Team Homer. Like, that was a really good, like, because they were starting to get really much more comfortable in season seven incorporating the ensemble cast uh, and making, like, understanding Mo and Apu as characters enough that they could be kind of the secondary players of an episode. And I think Team Homer is really awesome for that, like, expanding on the world of Springfield while still being Simpsons-focused, and I, and I really love that. Um but then the sentimental uh, title in that in that season, besides Summer of Four for Two, is Marge Be Not Proud, which was, I think, only the second time they even did a Christmas episode. Um, uh, it, the syndicators didn't like the Christmas episodes because you couldn't run them all the time. Yeah, um, which, like, fair enough. But, I mean, I, I still like a Treehouse of Horror any day of the year, which that's another thing. My, <laughs> oh. my sister's four-year-old son, she has gotten him into The Simpsons, starting weirdly enough with the treehouse of horror stuff because she's like it's actually 
there's more kid-friendly stuff in in treehouse and i'm like you're not showing them the one where they eat kids are you but that's what led to me witnessing my four-year-old nephew last summer running around yelling i'm smarter than the devil um (laughs) (laughs) yeah that kid's all right um but yeah like marge be not proud like oh what a what a beautiful episode and like that also that introduced young Brita who Lawrence Tierney was uh and I knew that I had something to be very afraid of um Mm. but um like so many great one-liners but at the same time like that episode is about kids growing up and pulling away from your mother and like it's an emotional episode it's interesting you bring it up because I I remember reading an essay uh, many, many years ago, and I don't know if I'd be able to find it online now, uh, where Marge Be Not Proud was cited as the point where the series uh, peaked, uh, but but in really? a bad way, where it, where it jumped the shark, because they, oh. they, they, just, they, 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 they uh, labeled it as a very special episode, um, <gasps> which, you know, as if you watched any 90s TV, you know, you'll recall. You know, every uh, every sitcom would have the, the live action sitcom would mm-hmm. have a character, you know, getting cancer or, you know, uh, drinking. Dying or, yeah, or, and it, yeah, and it's like a uh, tonight a very special episode of mm-hmm. Home Improvement, and you know, and Jonathan Taylor Thomas would be sad in the promo, and, and you know, but and and so and so they cited it as as that, but without the without the treacle cutting at the end, like it was playing, they basically saying that it was playing it straight. I mean, obviously you had the bit at the end where he gets Lee Carvalho's putting challenge for Christmas instead of Bone Storm. But, <laughs> I am uh, Carvalho. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, so it's interesting that you bring that up, and I mean, I don't know if I necessarily agree, but uh, I but definitely that was, that don't. Was yeah, opinion. that was one person's opinion that that. Uh, that I that I certainly recall. Season seven is definitely very good. And as I've gotten older, you know, there are certain elements that I can appreciate more. Uh, Two bad neighbors, which I didn't understand or like as a kid, I like a lot more now. Yes. You know, uh, doing doing what I do for a living now, I, I'm much uh, much more of a fan of of uh, of Kent Brockman as a character, um, or um, uh, the episode with the uh, with the babysitter whose name I can't remember now. Uh, Ashley Grant. Rock bottom. Yeah. Yeah. At rock bottom and, and all that kind of, those kind of takes on uh, on the media and what the media was like. And I, I just, mm-hmm. two cameras is a thing that I, you know, uh, that I think of now. It's like, all right, folks, we got to escape octopus on the roof of Springfield Elementary. Let's roll. <laughs> two cameras. Yes. And knowing now what I know about producing, you know, TV, uh, TV news, like you don't send two cameras to anything. You only have few cameras yeah that <laughs> which i kind of love and uh and i'll, I'll give you one more uh is um uh bark gets an elephant and uh wiggum keeps answering the phone wiggum <laughs> oh sure lady yeah, an elephant just ran through your yard hangs up. Wiggum. <laughs> and and i remember the, the commentary kind of joking like he just answers the phone wiggum and like i would tell you cops talk like that all the time uh-huh. <laughs> i i call the cops every day for work and so that's how they talk so it was good and it's it's something that i think they came across by accident but uh that ended up being funny for me yeah i I just think with season seven and and the the reason i i perhaps have a bit of an overreaction to um marge be not proud being called a very special episode in like a bad way is because like have you not watched the entire series like especially the early years really started out as 
a series of very special episodes. Uh, but in, in terms of parody, I mean, back to season three, Mr. Lisa goes to Washington, which is now unofficially the premiere of season three because they, you know, eliminated uh, Stark Raving Dad from the library. Um, that's the story about a little girl becoming disillusioned with politics. And that is one of the few characterizations that frankly sticks uh, because Lisa was uh, an incredibly idealist uh, child in like, even in the Thanksgiving episode and stuff when she's making her centerpiece, like she has, she has a lot of faith in institutions. And for Mr. Lisa Goes to Washington, it, it's gone. And so I'm just like, these, this has been a series full of very special episodes to me. Um, and I, I also just think, to me, uh, the reason I like Marge Be Not Proud is because it shows that this is a, that, that I think what showed the best grasp of the characters. There are so many, like, because it's not just a sentimentality episode. Like, I think of um, Homer talking about his his punishments. Like, first of all, no leaving the house, not even for school. Secondly, no, <laughs> no stealing for three months. No eggnog. In <laughs> fact, no nog. Period. Period. Which, as a kid, my thing was like, haha, like it's a joke because, like, why would you have, like, what other nog is there than eggnog? And now, as a person who does not eat eggs, um, I will get holiday nog and almond nog. And so I'm just like, no nog, period. Um, but, but, like, there are so many, like, it's not just a very special episode, and they do still take the time to, um, to get in those eccentricities uh, with all the characters. The other thing is it's an episode that is very full and has a, is jam-packed with content, but it really is only about the Simpsons. Like, I don't think there's even really any Flanders in it. Like, the only other notable character is Milhouse, uh, Milhouse's mom, and Don Brodka. Don Brodka. Yeah, the Don Brodka. Yeah, what a voice. <laughs> what oh, a voice. Man. And for anyone out there who hasn't heard... Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein talk about Lawrence Tierney. Mm -hmm. um, find a recording of that commentary track and that story of the day he came in to record. Didn't you like ask and, him for a uh, ride home or something? Well, no. So uh, he showed up in a limousine and the limo driver refused to pick him up because he was that much trouble on the <laughs> way to the set. And then he's yelling at uh, the intern. His intern's opening up his lunch. He's like, oh, we're trying to record over here. <laughs> and, you know, and they, they tell this story, and it's like it's a day that they'll never forget. And then they based um, uh, they based a Mission Hill character off of that one day of recording for The Simpsons. Uh, oh, what? Gus? Uh, uh, well, Gu I mean, Gus is uh, somewhat based off of um, an old actor, oh, David, David Niven. David Niven, I th no, David Niven is his partner, um, but uh, it, it was some old character actor who regularly played strong men. Um, I'll say Gus is a lot more likable, though, than Lawrence Tierney. You know, when you think about it, there's not a lot the Simpsons and Seinfeld have in common, except that they both have Lawrence Tierney stories, because I believe he also yes. terrorized the set of Seinfeld when he played Elaine's dad. Yeah, I mean, I, he, I, that's just sort of the kind of guy he was, I suppose. Yeah. But uh, they did have a good, uh, and and they did have a good line about uh, wanting to get him for his voice, and you have to drink sixty thousand gallons of whiskey and smoke seven million cigarettes to get a voice like his. And you know, they don't make actors like that anymore. <laughs> and uh, and I joked uh, in my early radio career, one of my New Year's resolutions was to drink more whiskey and smoke cigarettes <laughs> so that I could get a better radio voice. 
I, I didn't follow through as you know we all do with our New Year's resolutions. I just couldn't stick with it. But yeah, uh, um, <laughs> there there were. I'm looking at season seven, and there were a lot of really good guest stars in season seven. Um, with things like uh, Lisa the Iconoclast, um, uh, Marge Be Not Proud having Lawrence Tierney, uh, the day the violence died. Um, so yeah, I think for me, I I will settle on the peak being season seven. I know in past when I've done tv shows i have picked kind of a specific episode and it's really hard for me to figure out like what's my favorite episode from the season versus what do i think was actually like the peak because i do think season eight is fine but i think it really like it's very inconsistent from there and there are a lot of episodes that are just bummers like i i'm a pro frank grimes episode person i think it's fine but i do agree with the criticism that it's like the darkest moment in the show's history um it's it's um the finale of season eight that i hate um the secret war of lisa simpson i just think like what kind of finale is this um but in terms of like you know what's not just my favorite episode but what do i think like was everything about that season and for me and this was an episode i loved as a kid i love as an adult bard on the road I think it was um, when they really perfected doing two parallel stories. Uh, you have, you know, Bart with his friends and you have Lisa and Homer at the plant together. You've got great one-liners and like, you know, a, a great random, like that's one, another thing they don't really do anymore is random names they made up, like Lined and Alger. Like you don't hear about funny names like that. Um, great That visuals. was an actual real person. It was? Langdon Alger was uh, was an actual person that the writer went to school with. No way! Oh, and of uh, he 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 actually called uh, he actually called him up. He's like, uh, "Hello, uh, my name is Langdon Alger. I understand I was in an episode of The Simpsons." Like they tell oh that gosh. story. It's like he was. In, that's where he pulled the name from. Like it's not a, a Leslie Hap Happablap. Wow. Uh, but uh, apparently that was actually they, they, the the actress pronounced it. I think it was. Uh, the actual person pronounces his name Alger instead of Alger, but ah. uh, but that's where they pulled the name from. Yeah. Uh, so and, and then the last thing I really love about Bart on the Road is just like the visuals of it, uh, like the image of the boys sitting there in the wigs. Now, anytime I see like a sun spear or something like that, I I call it a wig spear. Um, which again, like I have I have so many friends, I can't emphasize this enough. My friends always know what I'm talking about all the time. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I think Bard on the Road. I mean, it's very Marge light, which a lot of those uh, a lot of that era can be, especially if Schwarzwelder was writing. But um, yeah, I think to me the quality of the Simpsons in terms of writing, laughs, animation peaked at Bard on the Road. Now that said, I've got two other uh, two other nice guys who are possibly going to change my mind over the next couple of weeks. So, uh, Ted, I'm super, I'm super curious because you might even change my mind right now. You want to know when it peaked. Now, <laughs> this is a theory. Now, I wanted to bring up this theory because I brought up the eras before. And yeah. so because the Simpsons is such a long-running thing and because it's such an institutional and cultural thing, I don't know if we can necessarily give it a, a particular peak in terms of just one peak. Oh yeah, totally. I think that's so. Valid. I want to give you kind of, kind of different peaks, and I want to give you basically two. And so I'll give you the show peak, and, and you know I'm I'm kind of along the same lines, uh, along the same lines with you. I'm kind of it was right after 22 short films, uh, and, and it basically just the seasons that came after that, uh, where I started to drop off because I mean I was going through in in, in researching for this. Uh, sometimes it, it it's actually kind of 
kind of astounds me how early in time some of these episodes that I recall being later actually were like season you know season uh, 9 was in 1997 you know and it feels like it was later than that so I was a lot younger than I remember being um you know uh but you know it once the show started to become a vehicle for celebrity appearances rather than using the celebrities as a vehicle for the show. Oh, and the way they introduce uh, them, like, Lady Gaga! Like, oh, God. It's in sync. <laughs> uh, you know, I think about that one. That's kind of that's kind of the, the one that sticks in my mind the most. I remember being really cynical about yeah. when, it, when it aired. But I also remember enjoying how they had fun and were able to make fun of themselves. So I yeah. kind of actually sort of liked it. Yeah. But, you know, where you look at where they would get... Uh, where they would get uh, Dustin Hoffman or they would get uh, uh, Kurt Russell mm -hmm. because they liked their voices and they could make them be characters uh, versus, you know, showing up for the sake of being being on The Simpsons. And this was a, th a thing that celebrities do now. You yep. go on The Simpsons. Um, that's that's kind of where kind of where the show shifted mm -hmm. in terms of what it was for me yep. as a show. Now, as a thing, uh, I want to say that the the Frankiac era that I brought up earlier, mm -hmm. and the the uh, the shit posting and the memes that came out of that, that gave a whole new life to The Simpsons uh, for a lot of people. I think not just me, but I think for a lot of people online who are of a millennial age and who remember the show and remember those kind of that those golden years as we call them, and and that's a separate era. That's a separate thing. Mm -hmm. Because it, because it's it's it is it is the show it is the Simpsons but it's also because it became its own thing people were morphing gags together and mixing things up and creating almost a, a whole new kind of language mm -hmm. you know you learn to speak in the Simpsons and 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 that all culminated with steamed hams which <laughs> was great but I do think it started to run itself into the ground after a while yes and uh, and. And, and that's what basically launched Bill Oakley's fast food review career, yes. which is the thing that he does now on social media is he reviews fast food. And it was because of steamed hands because he was the guy who wrote that uh, he and Josh and, uh, and, 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 but you know, so, so that's, that's kind of a second sort of thing. And I mean, I, I'm maybe not necessarily in the same circles as I was, you know, even just a few years ago when Simpsons, when Frankie came out and the Simpsons posting like that was at its peak. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I, I would say that there's there's those two kind of uh, two kind of peaks or two kind of eras to the show and to not just the the, the show as a TV show uh, but the show as a cultural uh, experience a, mm -hmm. a touchstone for for our generation. You know what's so interesting? Uh, it, you're talking about Frankie and like you're so right that 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 does add a new layer uh, to it and it makes me think a lot about my degree, which like I. Uh, I didn't go to J school. Wah, wah. I have a degree. Neither in... did I. It's okay. <laughs> nice. Um, I, I have a degree in English and cultural studies, and that's mainly because at Laurier, uh, there are a few things that like you can't single major in. I couldn't single major in cultural studies. I had so it's like okay, I, I like English lit. I guess uh, cultural studies they only have it at the undergraduate level at two 
universities in this province. And it's like, it's not, people think like, oh, is it like an Aether or global studies? It's pop culture studies. Uh, you know, there's cultural studies of music, cultural studies of monsters, myths, and machines. And my fourth year seminar was cultural studies, uh, or it was remix culture by uh, the amazing uh, former uh, program coordinator, Dr. Alexandra Boutros, uh, who was a huge, uh, just a huge positive influence in my life. And that class was fantastic because one of the many themes that we talked about was um, ownership of pop culture and um, you know the way some authors uh, and some creators rebel against that like uh, George Lucas is a really good example of someone who is in the negative um, you know the way he uh, when he remastered uh, Star Wars and you know he did certain things that fans didn't like and it's because he was really into preserving his vision and like I have no problem with a creator uh, you know um, asserting their their ownership, but you know the way he basically destroyed uh, all for all uh, older versions of it. Um, another really iffy example is um, no- noted bad person J.K. Rowling, and how like she, um, you know, she's tried to sue to get like slash fiction of um, of Harry and Ron taken down from even like fanfiction.net and stuff because like that you know goes against her vision and stuff and. Um, she is very insistent on like, no, the canon of Harry Potter is this. And like people have parodied that, of course, because, you know, now she's come out and she'll like, no, the canon is Dumbledore's gay. No, the canon is uh, Hermione's, Hermione is uh, biracial coded or whatever. Um, and so those are examples in the negative, but there, there, are some auth- there are some authors and some creators who really invite remix and love and love when people remix their shit and a great early example is with the simpsons is the fact that uh matt Groening is fine with bootleg simpsons t-shirts and fine with bootleg simpsons merch and like he's never he's not an overly litigious creator and when you talk to like bill oakley and josh weinstein they love the shit posts that people have done and like oh yeah they retweet those all the time because it's when you look at shit posts and meme making, that's about how fans experience something. And it's like a little peering into their mindset. Um, and even like, you know, you and I have talked about the way The Simpsons pops into our brains at random times. I think the shit post is even a better example of how like we can hop from one Simpsons thought to another so quickly and like. Yeah, and not even in any kind of connection because it all just sort of fits together as this. Uh, it, like I said, it, you you learn to speak in The Simpsons. It's almost a language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so before we go, uh, since we've discussed the peak, I, I have a fun question for you, um, and it's not necessarily about the chronology of The Simpsons, but I want to know, outside of the immediate Simpsons family, who is your favorite character? Ooh, that's a good question. I like Leopold the best. Ah, oh, they, they needed to use him more. Although maybe they used him just enough. I, that's that's why I like him so much. Yeah. Leopold had one joke, and <laughs> it's that he shows up and he's really mean and he's really angry and he's big and he's scary and then he introduces somebody really soft. And it was Ned Flanders the first time as the principal. Yeah. And then it was Marge as the substitute teacher. Um, and and so those, those are his only really two appearances. I you might have seen him in the background or, or something at some point or other later on in the show, mm-hmm. but they never did those jokes again. But uh, I just and, and it's partly because my English teacher in high school loved Leopold too, and I <laughs> like Mr. O, Mr. Obang had a very very big influence on on me as a young man. 
and uh, and and so that kind of cemented that character in my mind as, as something that that is good. But I just I just love and I love doing you know like all right, listen up, you little freaks. <laughs> one teacher you're not gonna screw with. Screw with, yeah, oh. you know, yeah. Marge Simpson, and so and so that would be that would be that would yeah. be my answer. I I have two, and one is uh, I'm, I'm cheating a bit because not immediate family grandpa simpson i love grandpa simpson so much especially like there there are times when he's written to be more cruel than uh than silly i do like when he's a bit more silly uh and as i'm sure most people have seen i have a i have a tattoo of homer simpson on my right bicep and it's homer simpson doing the here's johnny and it's for a couple reasons one is partly because i um I love The Shining, and I think mean, we haven't even talked about the, the Amazing Simpsons parodies. Um, you know, that I knew The Shining before I saw The Shining because of that amazing mm-hmm. parody. But when he, but, uh, and then I did watch The Shining way too young. I think I was eight the first time I watched The Shining. I, Mom, Dad, maybe you didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> um, but with, um, so, the other reason I love that and I love grandpa in that scene is because my grandpa who passed away two years ago and he was you know my best friend my favorite person in the whole wide world I miss him every day um when he met my friends because he always like made a point of your friends are welcome in my house you know your boyfriend is welcome here and he when he introduced himself to my friends and to my partners he wouldn't say hi I'm Bill he'd say hi I'm grandpa and he'd say in this very pleasant voice and I turned to my sister one day and I just like hi David I'm grandpa and so like that scene just fills my heart with so much warmth and it's like I when I told that to my mom even because she's like you seriously aren't getting a Simpsons tattoo I'm like no 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 there's a meaning for grandpa uh, but but yeah. also like my grandpa was somewhat more of a like a slightly more intellectual version of grandpa simpson which is like this silliness and like you know having the most random old references and the funny little expressions that they had like i think grandpa's actually grandpa simpson is a very well observed character uh, about old people because like the random shit they remember the weird little idioms they have that didn't quite survive or make it to the next generation like that is very well captured in grandpa if we're gonna, and also yeah. the loneliness uh, oh, God. of being the retirement you know, and, castle and, is such a sad set piece and 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 that's one of the things that uh, that was always david merkin's thing it's like this is coming for all of us mm-hmm. so that's why you need to treat your elders nice because you're going to be old one day it's going to happen to you <laughs> that said if we're going for people whose last names aren't simpson i would have said mole man um but I think Mole Man is more of like, I like his one-liners and stuff. Um, and again, my friend Alex and I just kind of quote Mole Man to each other all the time. <laughs> the scene of, of his and Patty's kids running into each other and one falls right out the window, like, <laughs> chef's kiss, baby. But uh, my actual favorite character is Mo. Um, I, I think Mo is just like, when they decided probably around like season eight or nine that Mo is just really pathetic, um, like, because... Look at if you want to watch something stark, season one Mo, he's like the wise old barkeep that dispenses advice to Homer, and it's so different mm-hmm. and stuff. But like as Mo gradually becomes more pathetic, uh, that's one like flanderization that I'm totally down with because he's just like every every sitcom, every comedy needs their character that gets dumped on, and I think Mo's a great person to do it to. He takes his head out of the oven. Yes. 
and replaces it with a plump Christmas goose. I just, yeah, I just love that 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 scene of him with his head in the oven. He's in his boxer shorts and his tank top, and it says "No funeral" taped to his back. It's one yeah. of the darkest <laughs> like, jokes. Oh, oh uh, boy, like so, poor Mo. Somebody, somebody help that man. Oh, poor Mo, indeed. Well. So we've settled on like the season six, season seven era. However, like I said, I'm, I'm ready for my mind to be changed. So um, Ted, before we let you go, uh, where can people uh, follow you and hear your thoughts as well as, you know, just see what you're writing? Uh, well, the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. I'm Ted Friendly Guy. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's, where my, uh, that's where my thoughts tend to be. Uh, you'll find plenty of Simpsons humor and also just random uh random thoughts uh, and occasional and dog pictures fun. uh yes i have a very cute dog whose name is prince oh, and he's uh, you'll so find cute. those on there too <laughs> thank oh. you uh so you'll find that on there too so that's uh, that's the best place to follow me all right ted friendly guy and he is a very friendly guy folks hard recommend as for me i've been brie roadie and you can find me on twitter at Breganism, which is like veganism but with a b-r-e-e get it our theme music is homo logo by jack dump and you can find them on bandcamp.com slash jack dump our show logo is made by jared daly who happens to be my husband uh new episodes are due out every two weeks you do not want to miss them or you can go through our back catalog because we've got episodes on malcolm in the middle king of the hill so you think you can dance saw the office and more we've We've got stuff coming down the pipeline on Mighty Ducks, Parks and Recreation, Scream, and oh so much more. So remember, if you're past your peak, rolling downhill is also very fun. Now Marge, you've come to the right place. By hiring me as your lawyer, you also get this smoking monkey. Better cut down there, Smokey. <laughs> Mr. Hutz. Look. He's taking another puff!